with us this morning for the first time. We are making our way through this great gospel and we're about to wrap up the first main section uh, here in John chapter 12, and we began last week looking at these, uh, the, the, the final passage here, verses 36 through 50, and we, we had to go down into some deep uh, caverns last week, and so it took us a little longer than, than uh, normal, and so we didn't get through this entire passage, but let me just reread for you uh, John chapter 12, verses 36 through 50 as we start again this morning. John chapter 12, verse 36, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, "He who believes in me does not believe uh, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him." The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Father, again, we are amazed that we can address the same Father as Jesus did. 2,000 years ago, but we know ultimately that you were his father and you are our father, and it's all a mystery to us, but Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to get to dive back into your word and pray that your, your spirit would illuminate our minds to understand this text and to make application of it to our lives, Lord, that we would be different, we would be changed, we would be more like Jesus because of our time together uh, looking at him and his word. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, when it comes to accepting something or being convinced of something, it helps to be able to see it, doesn't it? I mean, it's hard to believe something is true if you can't see it. We've all heard of that popular expression, I'll believe it when I see it. However, according to the Bible, seeing doesn't necessarily result in believing. Lots of people in the Bible saw amazing things and yet refused to believe. In the Old Testament, Pharaoh witnessed the greatest series of signs and wonders ever granted to one man in the history of the world. He saw these ten plagues, and yet he still hardened his heart against God. In the New Testament, as we saw last week, the the Jews watched Jesus perform countless miracles 
but they still refused to believe he was God and ended up murdering their own Messiah. And so both Pharaoh and the Jews kept wanting more proof. But what unbelievers fail to realize is that their main problem is not a lack of proof, it's a lack of what? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. They don't, they don't have the faith to believe what they cannot see, and so they spurn the Bible's call to walk by faith and not by sight. And really, that is the essence of, of faith itself. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, in that same context, and Hebrews eleven six, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And so it's natural, I think, to assume that we need to understand something before we can believe it, whereas the Bible says you have to believe something in order to understand it. In other words, you'll see it when you believe it. And yet, ultimately, none of us can see it or believe it without God's grace and mercy intervening in our lives. Why? Because based on our sin nature, as we learned last week, we have blind eyes and a hard, unbelieving heart. And so God must open our blind eyes and He must soften our hard hearts. We are unable to believe until God enables us to believe. And when it comes to the sovereignty of God and man's salvation, he either mercifully opens eyes and softens hearts, or he judicially blinds eyes and hardens hearts. Hardens hearts. And that's why some people believe in him and some don't. And yet from a human perspective, it is amazing. It's astonishing when those you would never expect to believe do and those you would expect to believe don't. And the Jews are a great example of this. They had and still have far more reason to believe in Jesus than the rest of the people in the world. And yet the majority of them in Jesus' day rejected him as their Messiah. And those today, most continue to reject him as their Messiah as well. And so the obvious question is, well, why don't they believe? Well, why don't, the, why don't the Jews believe? And I think an even more compelling question for us is, is if God's own people don't believe in Jesus, then why should anyone else in the world believe in Jesus? Well, why should you believe in Jesus? Why should I believe in Jesus? And so again, John intended to answer both of these questions in this final text here, the last uh, section of chapter 12. He realized that some, someone reading his gospel might argue at this point that he had, had actually shot himself in the foot by providing more evidence not to believe in Jesus than to believe in Jesus. The, the fact that Jesus' own people, especially the Jewish religious leaders who, who supposedly knew the Old Testament better than anybody, they missed the obvious implications of Jesus' signs and rejected him as a Messiah. So that seems to be evidence that his claims were not true. And so John, as he summarized Jesus' public ministry here, he, he, um, he gave an extended theological explanation, if you will, for Israel's unbelievable unbelief. I thought that may be another way to uh, title this series here, or this this two-part series, is 
is unbelievable unbelief. And he wanted his readers here to understand why the Jews didn't believe. I mean, how could there be such rank unbelief in the face of such irrefutable evidence? And so John made it clear here that their unbelief was not because of a lack of evidence. Jesus had given, given them plenty of evidence, plenty of convincing proofs. But the problem was that they had continually closed their eyes and hardened their hearts to God's word for centuries as a nation. And by the time God's incarnate word arrived on the scene, they were completely blind and hard to the truth, which was the real cause of their unbelief. And so it's not that they wouldn't believe, they couldn't believe. And so we said last week that you could divide up this passage into two sections. First of all, the theology of unbelief, its causes, what causes unbelief, verses 37 to 43, and then the tragedy of unbelief, its consequences uh, in verses 44 to 50. And we, we didn't quite make it through the first point, the theology of unbelief, but let me just, just give you a quick review here, um, and then we'll wrap up that point and go on to the second point. But you remember that John mentioned here two causes for the Jews' unbelief, which illustrated the tension between divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. We saw, first of all, that God predetermined and predicted that the Jews wouldn't believe in Jesus. And we're going to see next here that the Jews also were scared and, uh, of one another, and they loved the approval of one another so much that that kept them from believing. Verse 37 John was expressing his shock and awe that in spite of all the miracles that Jesus did, right, that, that most of the Jews still refused to believe that Jesus was a Messiah. And, and he goes on to talk about how the Jews' unbelief was predicted in the Old Testament. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 1, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And he wanted to show how God had prophesied that not only would most not believe in Jesus, they could not believe in it even if they wanted to. But the point is they didn't want to. We talked about how God would blind their eyes and harden their hearts so they could not see or hear and be saved. And so because the Jews continually rejected God's revelation, God punished them by making them unable to believe in Jesus. And again, we have to be very careful here. God God doesn't blind or harden anyone against their will. It's their own choice. It's their own fault. We saw the example of Pharaoh, right? Ten times it says that he hardened his own heart. He hardened his own heart. Ten times it says that God hardened his heart. And then Paul uses that as an example in Romans chapter 9 to talk about his sovereignty and salvation. Romans chapter 9 verse 16, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And we said that that was right in the, the middle of John or Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 where we see that Israel's rejection of Jesus was all part of God's sovereign design to include the Gentiles in the plan of salvation. Aren't you thankful? Right? Because we wouldn't be sitting here today if the Jews hadn't hardened their hearts 
and or God hadn't hardened their hearts, right? Um, it was a temporary hardening, a temporary blinding, so that we could see and we could respond and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that brings us to where we left off. Verse 41, notice Paul, uh, John says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who is the pronoun here, his and him, referring to? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus here. This is, this is an absolutely stunning statement because John referenced the most glorious, breathtaking description of Jehovah God anywhere in the Old Testament. This is, this is a reference to Isaiah's vision of God's holiness in Isaiah chapter 6. And he says it was a description of who? Jesus. Now, look back there for a moment. Look at, look at Isaiah chapter 6. This is a familiar uh, passage. But I don't know that you may have ever read it with Jesus in mind. So why don't we do that? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Notice the the phrase there in verse 1. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. Now, if you know your Bibles, that should cause you to stop for a second and go, wait a minute, time out. I thought that no one can see God and live. We, we know that's true. Uh, many references throughout the scriptures talk about how you cannot see God. In fact, there's, there's actually one in, in John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. And so who did Isaiah see? He says, I saw the Lord. Who did he see? He saw Jesus. He saw a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, according to Paul in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's the point. God is invisible, right? But as it says in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. In other words, you can't see God, but you can see Jesus. And so again, this is uh, just another undeniable piece of evidence that, that, that John brings forth here when he says that Isaiah saw Christ's glory and he spoke of Christ, he spoke of Jesus. This is, this is astounding to say that Jesus was the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. Essentially what he's saying is Jesus is God. And if the Son is the perfect revelation of God to mankind, then it stands to reason that whenever God revealed Himself visibly to people in the Old Testament, He must have done, through, done so through the agency of His Son. And it's no wonder if Isaiah saw Jesus that God revealed 
to him more messianic prophecy than anyone else in the Old Testament. Did you realize that Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament? Why? Because he talks more about Jesus back in the Old Testament, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, than, than any other prophet. I think it's an interesting connection, right? You see Jesus, you're right about Jesus. God was preparing him for his ministry, his prophetic ministry of preparing the people of Israel for their Messiah, Jesus Christ, by giving him a vision of the Messiah, giving him a vision of Jesus Christ. Notice now on the heels of God's sovereignty and salvation, John John mentions here man's responsibility to believe in Jesus. Verse 42, nevertheless, that's I think going back to verse 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Verse 42, nevertheless, Many, even of the rulers, believed in him. So despite the the widespread unbelief of the Jews, there was a remnant who believed. And and while the majority didn't believe, many did believe, including some of the religious leaders. I mean, this is encouraging, sort of, because it says, nevertheless, even many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, I'm not so excited anymore, right? Apparently, through the interactions that these religious leaders had with, with Jesus, that many times they confronted him, that They were in his presence, they listened to him, they saw him do a miracle, heal someone. They became convinced that he was indeed the Messiah. And so they didn't share the opinions or or agree with the actions of the rest of the Sanhedrin who were trying to get him killed, have have him executed. But they didn't at the same time share their conviction lest they be cut off from Jewish religious life and, 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 and Jewish social life. We know that was a fear, a legitimate fear. Uh, that was uh, John chapter 7, verse 13. It says, Yet no one was speaking openly of Jesus for fear of the Jews. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 22, when the, the Pharisees went after the, the parents of the man born blind that Jesus had healed, they wanted to verify if this guy was really born, or born blind or was Jesus kind of playing tricks on people. And it says his parents said, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And the reason why they said this is because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Well, that's going to be a problematic situation if you are part of the Sanhedrin and you confess Christ as as the Messiah, you get kicked out of the synagogue. You get kicked out of the Sanhedrin. Well, we know two of Two of these men, by name, two of these religious leaders, uh, rulers, members of the Sanhedrin, who confessed Christ, not publicly at this point, but later, who were they? Nicodemus, right? And who else? Joseph of Arimathea. So we met Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, right? He came to Jesus under the cover of night wanted to kind of get some personal time with Jesus and, and uh, Jesus talked to him about the importance of being born again 
And unless he was born again, he would not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think that really planted a seed in Nicodemus' heart. I mean, he may have confessed Christ that night. We're not sure privately with Jesus, but it definitely planted a seed. He shows up again in John chapter 7, really in defense of Jesus. It says in verse 50, Nicodemus, who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And so here, Nicodemus is taking a stand for Jesus. He's sticking up for Jesus. Saying, we, we can't do this. We've never done this before. This is, un, this is unprecedented. And they said, What are you, what are you, what are, you what, are you one of his? Well, we know that he came out loud and clear after Jesus was crucified in John chapter 19, verse 38. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Now, a couple of things I want to mention here. Number one, if you were to look at Mark 15 and Luke 23, when they mention Joseph of Arimathea, they say he was a member of the council. And so we can assume that he was another member of the Sanhedrin alongside Nicodemus. And both of these men came out at the end and, and, and uh, took Jesus' body and, and, and buried it. But notice that phrase in verse 30, 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a what? A secret one. A secret one. Now commentators here will wrestle whether or not these religious leaders in John chapter 12 were actually true believers at this time or did they become true believers at some later point? You say, well, it says they believed. Well, we, we, we've seen a lot of people believe, right? Believe in the gospel of John. That doesn't mean that they actually believe, believed. Um, the fact that they were more concerned about what, what people thought of them than what God thought of them would seem to indicate that they maybe fit the pattern of these uh, other people we've seen so far who, who really have an adequate or false faith. John chapter 2. This is how John introduces this concept of that not everybody who says he's a believer is a believer, right? John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not believing in them, (laughs) for he knew what was in their heart. In other words, the implication is they were saying they believed in him, but he wasn't buying it. In John chapter 6, Verse 60, it says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, heard about having to eat his flesh and drink his blood, they said this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And later on it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So we add that to there's certain people that say they're believers who aren't believers, and there's those who maybe were thought to be disciples that weren't really disciples. And then in John chapter 8, Verse 30, he says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. 
And then he goes immediately into this discussion, challenging their faith as if it was not real. And so it could be that they were believing superficially, right? And the fact that they were not willing to confess him publicly was evidence that they weren't truly saved. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is it possible to be a secret Christian? I mean, it says in John chapter 19, he was a secret Christian, secret believer. John seemed to affirm that he, he was truly saved there at that point. At least at that point, it's a little clearer. But is, but is it possible to be a secret Christian or a closet Christian or an undercover Christian? We've heard these expressions before, right? Is it, to, is it possible to be a Christian and hide it from other people? Well, I think the first thing we need to think about is our brothers and sisters in Christ in countries that are, where the gospel is restricted, Christianity is restricted, and, and, and um, you know, they're persecuted for their faith. And, and in many of those contexts, they have to keep it a secret that they're a Christian. Uh, because they might blow the cover of the secret church, the underground church, right? We have an expression, the underground church. It's, it's, tip, it's, it's called the underground church because it's underground and it's hidden, it's secret. And they have to worship in hiding and they have to hide their Bibles so no one sees them. If they see them, they'll take them away, right? And so would we say that, well, there's some secret Christians, that's not good. No, we say that's good. They got no other choice, Right? But at the same time, the Bible clearly teaches that where there is true saving faith, there will be a willingness to openly confess your faith and publicly identify with Christ. And I think those are the verses that apply to us here in the West, where we have freedom of religion. We don't have to hide our Bibles. We, we didn't have to come here secretly, right? We're not concerned about the authorities coming and busting up our, our church service this morning. And so we've got no excuse to be a secret Christian, an undercover Christian, a closet, underground church. We don't need to be an underground church. And so I think we, we need to keep in mind here that when, when we, we truly repent of our sin and we receive Christ, we, we shouldn't be ashamed to tell other people about it regardless of what they might think about us. We should, we should be willing to take a stand for Christ and, and speak up for Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Luke nine twenty six. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. I guarantee you if any one of these underground Christians in, in some of these hostile countries were asked if they're a Christian, they wouldn't deny it. They would admit it, right? So I don't think they're violating those passages. Paul said in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Your mouth was given to you to say things, right? To speak out. It's not to be silent. So, 
if these religious leaders that John referred to here were true believers, um, I don't think they're model believers <laughs> because it says they wouldn't confess him publicly. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then, he, then John tells, them, tells us the real motive. They love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And I would just say if someone is a Christian, they, would, they should be willing right, to come out of the shadows and separate themselves from wh- whatever group they're a part of. They, they, they might even get kicked out of, right? To public identi- identify themselves with Christ. It's interesting that you could, you could conclude that they were true believers there. Or you could say, you know what? God was at work in their heart and they were some of the people that came to know Christ after his death and resurrection and ascension. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, The word of God kept on spreading. The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. There were Jewish priests getting saved. How cool is that? And, and what's more, in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, verse 5, this is uh, the council at Jerusalem when they were trying to determine what they should impose on the Gentiles who who came to know Christ. Uh, Verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And so you got some born-again Pharisees. I mean, that is really incredible. But just to wrap up this thought here, I appreciate D.A. Carson's comment. He said, almost certainly, John knew of Jews and proselytes in his day, as he was writing this, who were happy enough to believe in Jesus in some sense, but who display similar hesitations as these rulers. He says he wants them to know secret faith faith will not do. Secret faith will not do. I think that's the application for us today. Secret faith will not do. While we can rejoice that some of them were believing, right, we can learn from them not to be lovers of man's approval, right? Not, don't be man-pleasers, but be God-pleasers when it comes to our faith in Christ. And so that's the theology of unbelief. Let's look quickly now at the tragedy of unbelief. The tragedy of unbelief, its consequences. Its consequences. In verse verse. Um, 44, all the way to verse 50, if you've got a red letter edition Bible, all of that should be in red, right? Which is an indication that that, these are the words of Christ. Now, not to mess with your uh, confidence in Scripture here, okay? Because I do think these were the words of Christ. But I don't necessarily think that Jesus said these words right here, right now. You say, what are you talking about? Well, Verse 36, remember it says, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. I don't think Jesus kind of popped back out again. He could have, but I don't think so. I think what's going on here is that John was providing a a general summary of everything that Jesus had said up to this point. 
And so he, he was just quoting Jesus, if you will, uh, kind of pulling some of the key quotes, some of the, just to highlight uh, some of the, the, the main themes of Jesus' message, his, his deity, his ability to rescue people from darkness, the, the authority of his words, the, the tragic consequences of refusing to believe in him. And so that's what we have here is um, kind of a patchwork, if you will, of, of some of Jesus' previous statements that that uh, John pulls together here to make his final point. Notice verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. So again, Jesus, uh, uh, you read those, you're like, what did he say? And he's like, who, right? I mean, it's kind of, you read those and it's like, what is he really trying to say there? Well, don't let it confuse you. It's really simple. That he's just simply emphasizing that he was the perfect manifestation of God. And, and he often talked about that he and the Father were what? One. John chapter 8, verse 19. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Verse 38, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And then look ahead at John 14. When he's in the upper room, he's going to repeat this. John 14, verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, this is a very profound thought here, that, that in one sense, no one can see God because he's a spirit, right? He's spirit, the Bible says, and therefore he's invisible, But God wasn't content to leave himself invisible to us, and so he sent his son Jesus into the world to let us see what God is like, like father, like son. And so Jesus revealed God's character to us so that whoever has seen Jesus or heard Jesus has actually seen and heard the father. And so what Jesus is saying here is that whoever believes in Jesus also believes in God. John 14, 1, do not let your servant be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 1 John 2, 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Again, his point is, is this, that, that, that Jesus was sent from the Father. He's one with the Father. They're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. You can't say you believe in God, but don't believe in Jesus. You can't say you believe in Jesus, but not God. You need to believe in both. It's impossible to believe in one without believing in the other. The Father and Son are not two objects of faith. They're one object of faith.
And then look at verse 46. He says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Again, this is one of Jesus' favorite analogies. John um, highlights it uh, all over the place in the first 12 chapters. Probably the, the clearest place is in John 8, 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So again, what we've been learning is that Jesus came into the world to lead people out of Satan's kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom of light. Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Peter picked up on this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, talking to us as the church, saying we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of what? darkness into his marvelous light. So apart from Christ, all of us are in the dark. But when we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's like the light switch gets flipped on and we're like, whoa. Now we know where we came from. We know where we are, what we're doing. We know where we're headed, right? We can see clearly for the first time. Notice verse 47 and 48. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So again, just reaffirming what we've already seen is that the purpose of Christ's first coming was not to judge the world, but to Save the world. He's going to get to the judging part, right, when he comes back. His second coming is all about him judging the world, but his first coming was all about saving the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16, verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So he came to rescue mankind from darkness and provide them forgiveness for their sins and eternal life in heaven. But if we refuse to listen to what he said and repent of our sin and follow and obey him, then we will be judged. That's what John went on to say in that same chapter, John chapter 3, verse 36. It says, he who has the Son, who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then in 2 Thessalonians, we have probably one of the most horrific glimpses into the second coming of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, it says that when the Lord Jesus returns, he will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. A little different than a little baby in a manger, don't you think? So he's coming back with a totally different purpose. What is his purpose? To deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who don't, who have not obeyed and, and believed this gospel that he came to proclaim the first time. He's given us all this opportunity, right? All this time between his first coming and his second coming to believe and obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And those who don't, he will punish, he will judge when he returns. 
Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, if the sinner will not trust the Savior, the Savior must become the judge. And those who reject Christ and what he said about himself condemn themselves to death and hell. And when unbelievers will stand before God someday, it's the, it's, it's, it's the very words of Christ that God will use to judge them. They will be judged by the very words that they rejected. Which makes sense, by the way, because we know from John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we know Jesus was the Word itself. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 talks about how Jesus was the, the final and ultimate communication by God to mankind. Hebrews 1.1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, and in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son. And so, so Jesus is, is God's Word, if you will. His words are the Word of God. The words of Christ are the words of God. Colossians 3.16 what does it say? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So he's talking about you know, singing the Bible, singing scripture, and he refers to it as Christ's words. And then notice why this is true. Verse 49, for, why is it that, that it's the words that Christ spoke will be the tool or the standard by which God judges every person? For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So the reason why Christ's words will will serve as the final standard by which we're judged is because he spoke exactly what God wanted him to say, which means that they are ultimately God's words. Again, Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, it's an awesome thought that the unbeliever will face at the judgment every bit of scripture he has ever read or heard. The very word he rejects becomes his judge. You might remember that when we were studying together the the topic of expository listening, right? And we did a series on that several years ago and that's where that book, Expository Listening, came from. We, we talked about that whenever you sit under the preaching of God's Word, what should be in the forefront of our minds is that day when we will be judged based on how receptive and responsive we are to the Word that we're hearing preached. That God may even use this sermon, this morning's sermon, to judge you someday if you're an unbeliever. They'll say, remember, you went to that church March 30th, 2014, and you heard, a, you heard the gospel preached for the hundredth time from the gospel of John, and you still rejected it. David Clarkson, one of the Puritans, said this at the day of judgment, an account of every sermon will be required. 
and of every truth in each sermon. The books will be opened, all the sermons mentioned, which you have heard, and a particular account required, why you imprisoned such a truth revealed, why you committed such a sin threatened, why you neglected such a duty that was explained. Oh, what a fearful account. And so at the end of the day, what we do with what God has said through his son and what he said in his word will determine not only what kind of life we live here on this earth, but also where we'll spend eternity. And those who believe and obey Jesus will spend eternity in heaven. That's very clear. We've learned that already from John chapter 5. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. But those who don't believe, they will come into judgment and they will experience eternity in hell forever. Listen to the words of the the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 25, he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, who's that? Jesus. Much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So we know that people who refused Jesus' warnings on earth, they didn't escape. Why would we think we would escape, right? Who, who warns us from heaven? Notice the two times the word commandment is used there in those last two verses. He who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. When God sent his son to earth, I don't think the father said, hey, son, I want you to go down there and, and, and encourage them to repent of their sin and, and believe in you or suggest to them that it's a wise option. Um, I don't even think he maybe said invite them. Just, just go down there and invite them. Invite them to repent of their sin. Invite them to receive salvation in, in you. Now, I think he said, go down and command them to repent. Command them to repent. Command them to believe. James Montgomery Boyce highlights this thought here. He says, the offer of salvation is an invitation, but it is at the same time a command This is not something to be toyed with. This is not something to be delayed. God is our master and he orders us to turn from sin and to respond to him. The matter of belief is not optional. It is required of us. Therefore, to fail to believe is sin itself. And so with that, John concludes the record of Jesus' public ministry. And his focus from this point on is Jesus in the upper room preparing and equipping his disciples for what was to come. And just as we, we wrap up here, this first major section of the Gospel of John, I think it's a, it seems to me like an appropriate place 
to just stop and ask the question, have you believed John's report? Forget about the, the, the Jews and the Jewish religious leaders. And have, have you believed John's report? Has the arm of the Lord reveal, been real, revealed to you? I mean, for 12 chapters, if you've been with us as we've, we've gone through this together, for 12 chapters, you've seen Jesus. You've heard Jesus, his life, his ministry, his miracles, his message, his passion to save you from your sin. And so I ask you, are you absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Son of God? That's why John wrote this. That's why we're studying it so that you would be absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you personally confessed Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior? Not just the Savior of the world, but as your Savior, your personal Lord and Savior. Have you been delivered out of darkness to walk in His marvelous light, or are you sitting there this morning still in the dark? And the light's been flashing all around you, we've shown you, John has shown us the light switch. There it is. You want light? Receive Jesus. And you can live in light rather than darkness. Do you have the hope of eternal life in heaven? Do you know for sure that if you were to walk out of here and get hit by a car on your way home and you'd be ushered into eternity, do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven? I hope you can answer yes to all those questions. And one of the reasons why I've, I've just loved the Gospel of John, and I sense that you guys love the Gospel of John, is because it's just all about Jesus. And, and uh, we're an equipping church, right? We're, we're always about equipping and helping you grow and, and mature in Christ. But the Gospel of John has given us a chance to go back to the basics and go back to the Gospel and say, do you know Jesus? You might be coming and say, yeah, I, I like coming to the church because I, like I like to grow in Christ. I want to grow in Christ. Listen, you can't grow in Christ until you know Christ. And so I'm asking you this morning, do you know Christ? That's where it all starts, is knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of John and how it just um, exalts Christ just in all of his glory. Lord, we thank you for these first 12 chapters that have just um, put on display that Jesus is God, that he was truly your son who came to live the life that none of us could live and to die the death that we all deserve to die. And Lord, as you're, I sense, accomplishing a great work in the life of our church right now as we go through this, people are coming to Christ. Lord, I would, I would pray that more people would come to Christ. Lord, that there would no, be nobody here deceived into thinking they're saved when they're really not. Lord, there would be no one who has a stubborn, unbelieving heart, a hard heart towards the truth of the gospel. Lord, that you would just open blind eyes and soften hard hearts. Be merciful, be gracious to that rebel who's still sitting in here today, who is yet to just submit their lives to Christ. 
that they would just see Christ's glory and they would just want to come. They would just be compelled to come and to, to give up their life so that they could have Christ. And Lord, that he would transform them and make them a new creature. And Lord, we could rejoice in, in the glorious gospel and Lord, your sovereignty in salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.